Father, as we open your word once again, we pray, Father, for insight into it. May your spirit do his work of illumination. May we understand, Father, the biblical foundation behind what we know in our hearts to be true, that life is precious and that every human life bears upon it the image of God. We ask this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in a time when uh, things are changing in regard to issues like abortion. For 50 years, the Christian community has been working to the end of the decision made so long ago that we know as Roe versus Wade, which led to the slaughter of tens of millions of unborn children. Last year, something good happened, and that decision was overturned, but that did not stop the slaughter. It simply changed the arena of the battle from one nation to 50 states. And some of those states are doing everything that they can to stop the practice of abortion within their boundaries. But others, like our own, are seeking to foster the continued slaughter of children. And so it is appropriate that we not forget why we cherish life and why we continue to fight in our own respective ways for the lives of the unborn. And so I want to take some time this afternoon to throw out before you that which you already know. Another one of those situations where I'm just reminding you of things, and myself for that matter. Genesis 1, of course, teaches that everyone is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 make that very clear. God decrees to create man, male and female. He will create them, and he will create them in the image of God, something said about no other creature. And although theologians debate the exact nature of what it means to be made in the image of God, at the very least, it means that man represents God to the rest of creation in a unique way. Every human being is an image bearer of God and possesses inherent dignity. The truth that everyone is made in God's image has implications for this unfortunate controversy, right? There shouldn't be a controversy, but there is. And we begin with that very truth. The most powerful argument against abortion is that the unborn child is a unique person. 
There are a number of passages in the Bible that underscore this truth, and I want to take you through some of them. Taken together, they make an irrefutable case that unborn children should be thought of and protected as persons from the moment of conception. Let's start with Psalm 139. Perhaps the most well-known passage pertaining to the personhood of the unborn, where King David describes God's dealings with him in utero. Psalm 139, I'll begin with verse 13, where David says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So David, as he's referring to his own unborn life, speaks of it as fully personal. The person in his mother's womb was not a clump of cells. It was not an impersonal fetus with no moral value. It was David, whom God was forming and knitting together. Clearly, there is continuity from the prenatal person to the adult person writing the psalm. Theologian John Jefferson Davis puts it this way, David's praise, spoken from a postnatal perspective, assumes his identity with the prenatal individual described in verses 13, 15, and 16. That is, David sees no distinction between the him prior to his birth and the him after his birth. It's all David from conception, for David's purposes, beyond death. The personal identity of the unborn child is also highlighted by the repeated use of the personal pronouns I and my. And that language assumes personal identity in the womb. David speaks of himself in those pronouns as the one who was fearfully and wonderfully made. Whose frame was not hidden from God when he... When I was made in secret, David was David when he was being made, when he was being formed. And finally, God's work of creation in the womb is praised here by David as something that is wonderful as he reflects back on his prenatal development, which means that gestation is not a blind haphazard, random process. Rather, Scripture shows that God is actively involved in the smallest details, 
Moreover, God has knowledge of and relates to David while the future king is still in utero. God looked upon him when he was yet an unformed substance. In God's book were determined all of David's days, which had been ordained to him. He was the personal object of God's creative work. And so he cannot help but praise God as he considers just how he has been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, it should be said that there are some who would disregard what is said in this psalm on the basis that it is poetry. Well, it's just poetry. It's figurative language. You can't take that seriously. And it certainly is poetry. But it is poetry with a point. Psalm 139 is representative of how the entire Bible refers to the unborn as persons possessing moral value. We should also note that the Bible never speaks of the unborn as anything other than persons. Now, perhaps we should have said this at the beginning, but we'll say it now. We understand as we're talking about these things that these kinds of arguments, absent the work of the Holy Spirit, is not going to convince anyone who is dead in their sin and doesn't want to believe it. But, for now, first we're dealing with believers. That's why you're here. To understand the scripture because you think the scripture is important. And indeed, I think all of us who are here would agree that the scripture is not only important, it is the very word of God, and we are to live in submission to it. But it's also important that we know this for this reason. When we speak to unbelievers, we do not leave the scripture aside. We do not take the point of view that some Christians do, that Unbelievers don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, so it's pointless to use the Bible. That itself is unbiblical. The power of God comes through his word. The spirit of God works through his word. And so whether someone that we're speaking to will at first refuse to accept the authority of Scripture or refuse to listen to the authority of Scripture. It is the Word of God itself that the Spirit can use to change that heart. And so we do not set aside the Word of God when dealing with unbelievers. We utilize the Word of God. We don't necessarily have to give chapter and verse. Chapter and verses are not inspired but we can certainly give them scripture. We can quote the scripture. We can tell them what the scripture says. And if they will not receive it, then that is judgment upon their heads. But it is also the means by which the Spirit of God will transform a person. We were brought from death to life because of the word of God and the Spirit of God using that word 
to change us. And nothing changes when we're dealing with these particular subjects. Come back with me to another psalm, Psalm 51, another psalm of David. Here's another passage that serves to deepen our understanding of how the Bible sees the unborn. This, of course, should be a familiar passage to most of us. This is a psalm written out of David's anguish as he has finally come to grips with his great sin in taking Bathsheba illegitimately and murdering Bathsheba's husband. And he has finally been brought to repentance and this psalm is the result of that. I want you to look particularly at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Now, in these verses, as we've said, David is confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. In the process of asking for forgiveness, David acknowledges the profound depth of his own sinfulness. Verse 5, in fact, traces his sinfulness to the very beginning of his life. To the moment of his conception And as David traces his sin to its origin, he recognizes that he has always been a sinner before God. Because remember, we're not defining sinners as those who have acted sinfully. Sinners are defined as those who are descended from Adam and inheriting his sin. We sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. Sin is of our nature. And that's what David understands. David recognizes himself as a sinner in utero. Now some have argued that the phrase in verse 5, translated in sin, refers to David's mother. The entire context of the passage tells us that that's not right. There was nothing sinful about David's conception in regard to his mother or his father. His mother and father were married. Jesse had many other brothers older than David. And so we, although I don't think David's mother is ever mentioned anywhere, we go on the assumption that they were legitimately married and there was nothing illicit about David's conception. The entire psalm is speaking not about David's mother, but about David. In sin, my mother conceived me. That is, from my very conception, I was a sinner. In nature. And he would go on to sin, obviously, indeed, as all of us So Psalm 51 is clearly about David and his sin. No one else is in view. Another significant aspect of these verses is that David, as he did in Psalm 139, he uses personal pronouns to refer to himself in utero. 
I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, my mother conceived me. The entity in the womb is not impersonal. The psalmist consciously personalizes the unborn and sees the baby as a morally significant entity. Not only is the unborn David a sinner, he is also the recipient of God's moral instruction in utero. Old Testament scholars agree that the Hebrew words rendered here in verses 5 and 6 particularly innermost being and hidden part there in verse 6 do not refer to David but rather his mother's womb this is David's location Peter Gentry translates verse 6 as follows you desired truth in the smeared over place you make me to know wisdom in the bottled up place these are obviously references in Hebrew idioms to the mother's Womb. Gentry argues that the literary structure of these two verses teach the following. First, that David confesses his actual sin. So he acknowledges his own impotence, his own moral inadequacy that has been part of his nature since birth. Next, he prays for forgiveness of the sin. And then finally, he prays for power to overcome that moral Impotence. So Gentry concludes, apparently the divine image is there in the womb so that moral factors are entailed in the fetus. God desired truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom. So David, even in his embryological state by virtue of his status as a moral being distinct in his own personhood from the moment of conception has the moral law already inscribed within his being just as scripture describes elsewhere we see that old testament and new paul talks about the moral law being on both jew and gentile being a part of us our conscience is an aspect of this. And it begins to work its purposes in us from conception. In his mother's womb, David was a moral being and an inheritor of Adam's sin whose relationship to the moral law of God had already begun. Now, we're not given a huge explanation about this. We're not told how this works and how does the moral law affect a child in utero? None of that is, is, is laid out for us. But the fact is. Let's go to the New Testament. Take a look at Luke chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 39. Perhaps the clearest affirmation of the personhood of the unborn is the narrative that we find here in Luke chapter one, at the beginning of this passage, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will bear a son through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. 
Immediately upon hearing that news, Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who was herself six months pregnant. Luke relates their meeting beginning in verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and and entered the house of Zecharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now there are several different details of this passage which are important for us to consider and which serve as a quite remarkable affirmation of the personhood of the unborn. From the language of verse 39, there is good evidence that Mary journeyed as quickly as possible to Elizabeth after receiving the angel's message. So she is very early in her pregnancy when she arrives at Elizabeth's house. In fact, uh, Scholars believe that Mary had been pregnant for less than a month and perhaps for only a week or two when she visited Elizabeth. That fact is, is very significant considering the following conversation between the two women. The text says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth then exclaims, Blessed are you uh, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Which is an amazing statement in itself when you're dealing with who Jesus is. Mary's coming to Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting. So this is how I picture it. Mary's coming up the front walk and saying, hello, anybody home? Elizabeth hears her greeting and the baby leaps within her. And Elizabeth, not because she has some kind of super intelligence, but because we're told that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, She declares that Mary is the mother of her Lord, which is amazing. No, right? Mary comes, and Elizabeth concludes she's carrying the Messiah. She's carrying the Son of God. It's, It's really quite a stunning statement. Now, as I said, there are details in this passage we want to focus on in regard to personhood and life. First, John the Baptist leapt upon hearing Mary's voice. And it specifically, it isn't that we're told something caused John to leap. John leapt. 
The baby leapt. There is personal human activity going on in the womb. She describes, through through Elizabeth, we, we learn that the motive for John's response is joy. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, the sound of your greeting reached my when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. A baby in the womb is experiencing emotion and acting in response to it. So, in addition to that, John's leaping response is his acknowledgement of Jesus, very significantly. This is John's whole purpose in life, to be the forerunner of the Christ. And so still in utero, John's ministry of heralding the Messiah has already begun. Another thing we don't want to miss here. Elizabeth refers to Mary as a mother at a time when most women don't even know they're pregnant. Incredibly, she acknowledges that Mary is the mother of my Lord, Jesus, in his embryonic state, perhaps even prior to the time of implantation in the uterus at approximately two weeks, is recognized as Elizabeth's Lord. Prenatal Jesus is not an impersonal, non-moral entity. He is rightly honored as Lord by both Elizabeth and Elizabeth's unborn baby. Another thing to see. Elizabeth's choice of words we've touched on already. It's very significant. She says that the baby in my womb leapt for joy. The Greek word there is brephos, which is used to refer to her unborn child at this point. It's the same Greek word used for children after they are born. It's used when Jesus is called in chapter 2 a baby lying in a manger. It's the same language. There is no distinction between the baby in utero and a baby who has been born. One final observation about this passage. Both Elizabeth, as you see there in verse 41, and the unborn John are filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke wants his readers to perceive that the reactions of Elizabeth and John are appropriate. They are fitting responses to being in the presence of Jesus, who, although in utero, is the Son of God. The important theological point is that Jesus' incarnation did not begin in Bethlehem in a stall. His incarnation began in the womb of Mary at conception. The significance of the incarnation, though, not, though likely not grasped in its fullness, 
is being recognized, not at Jesus' birth, but far earlier. The incarnation is recognized as having begun months prior to Jesus' actual birth. Now, let's come back to the Old Testament for a moment. We've been reading every Lord's Day through Jeremiah. Let's go back to the beginning of Jeremiah, chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, Something very similar is said in Isaiah as well. We won't turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 9, Isaiah says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So in both of these passages, the prophets are reflecting upon God's call upon their lives. They are both consecrated. They are appointed. They are called to their respective vocations in utero. In Jeremiah's case, God explains to the prophet that he formed and knew him prior to his birth. The passage reveals that God had a personal relationship with this unborn prophet, similar to how he relates to the prophet as an adult. There is a clear continuity again that we saw in the Psalms, a continuity between prenatal and postnatal Jeremiah. The unborn prophet possesses the same calling in utero that he will then exercise later in life. The same is true for Isaiah, who receives his prophetic calling while in his mother's womb. Significantly, Isaiah says that God named him while in utero. The idea is that God is setting Isaiah apart for special service even before he's born. And this is confirmed a few verses later in verse 5 when the prophet explains that God formed him in the womb to be his servant and to bring a specific message to the nation of Israel. So Jeremiah and Isaiah are formed and called by God to serve him as prophets while still in their mother's womb. God's personal relationship with them in utero is additional evidence that unborn children possess full personhood. Other passages that reiterate the Bible's view of the unborn include passages like Job chapter 3, verse 3. I'll just run down a few of these with you. In Job 3, 3, it says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. So intriguingly, both birth and conception are used there interchangeably. Note that the child who was born and the child who is conceived are the same person. Another passage along those lines a little bit further in Job is Job chapter 10 verse 8 where Job laments, Your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. Again, the same person who is fashioned and made is then destroyed in Job's language, describing the trials that he was undergoing. Back in Judges, 
chapter 13, verses 3 to 5, contain the announcements, uh, the announcement to Manoah's wife that she will conceive and have a son. The angel instructs the woman to be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Who would that be? No, we're Old Testament. Remember, this book of Judges. Manoah, Samson, all right? Samson is a Nazarite. From the womb and given the instructions that his mother received from before the womb. The woman, Manoah, his, his mother should drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God. From the womb, from the time he is in the womb. So you understand to be a Nazarite is to take a vow or have, in this case, your parents take a vow at the behest of the Lord. And that vow includes a number of things. You're not going to drink wine. You're not going to touch dead things. You're not going to eat certain foods and so forth. And so even before his conception, his mother has to uh, abstain from these things because he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb, from his conception. The angel repeats that prohibition about against drinking wine or eating unclean food again later in that chapter. Notably, Samson's mother has to keep those Nazarite restrictions, not because she's a Nazarite, but because her son is going to be. So the restrictions apply from conception, and he would be defiled if his mother disobeyed the angel's order. So Samson, like David, is a person from conception. That is the biblical understanding. There being no reason to think that Samson and David are exceptions to this rule, we conclude that all unborn children are persons from conception. Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 and 23 is another passage that continues that theme. And there, the reality that unborn children can be the subjects of God's election and calling is revealed to us. While pregnant with twins, Rebecca is told, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And by God's sovereign grace, Jacob, while still in utero, is chosen over his brother to be the bearer of God's special covenant promises. This is further evidence that God relates to the unborn in a personal way. Later on, when Paul is talking about issues of election and God's sovereignty, Paul goes back to that particular episode from the Old Testament. And he marvels at God's electing the unborn Jacob as a covenant heir. He writes there in Romans 9, 11 to 13, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
She, that is Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul makes clear that the usual marks of personhood are there. Jacob and Esau are in utero. And the point that God makes and the point that Paul makes is that while they are in utero, they have no opportunity to do anything good or bad. I suppose, you know, they're in the womb. One of them could bop the other on the head or something. But the, 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 the point that is being made is about God's grace and his sovereignty. And it's not about either of these people. But that's the point. They are people. Jacob is not an impersonal amalgamation of human tissue. He is a moral being capable of being chosen by God for a personal relationship and to play a specific role in God's plan. In other verses, Psalm 22, verse 10, where David says, On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jacob 31.15, Job, uh, Job rather, Jacob. Job 31.15, Job defends the way he has treated his servants by saying this, Did not he who made me in the womb make him my servant? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job understands unborn life, his own and his servants, have great value to God. God has fashioned both. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. This is an important passage in this discussion and often raised in these kinds of conversations. Exodus chapter 21, beginning with verse 22 through 25. There's an ongoing debate involving what's going on here, but the thrust of the passage is that unborn children were valued under the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 22 to 25, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now we were speaking about this in one of our Bible studies last week in regard to what's referred to as the text as the lex talionis, which is this, the law of, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the word, excuse me, retribution, thank you so much, the law of retribution, right? and people will look at this and say, oh, well, this is just so, so barbaric, these ancient peoples who would, who would have a law like this, it's so terrible, and the reality is, that the law put forth here and in other places in the Mosaic law was a good thing that limited the kind of punishment that you could inflict upon people. That's what's going on here, right? So one of the 
examples I gave in our, our, our Bible study is you go into the Islamic world and what happens? Well, they find somebody who has stolen something. What do they do? They don't make him give it back and maybe a little extra. They chop his hand off. Right? Little extreme. Well, in the ancient world, that kind of thing happened all the time. But as God gave his law, he says, no, we're going to put a limit on this. So eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's, that's not some barbaric kind of thing. That's a limitation. If you're fighting and you take, you know, in the midst of the fight, someone loses an eye, you can't then kill the guy who inflicted the damage. So this law is laying out penalties specifically here for harming a pregnant woman and her unborn child. In the context is a situation where two men are fighting and accidentally hit a pregnant woman. If a woman is hit and premature birth results, but there's no harm to the woman or child, the man at fault will incur a fine. But if there is harm to either the woman or a child, the penalty is the application of the law of retaliation, okay? the lex talionis, whereby a punishment resembles the offense committed in kind and degree. That means that both the mother and the child are afforded equal protection under the law. Now, notably, the application of this principle in this situation is unique. Under similar circumstances, where someone unintentionally caused the death of another person, the penalty was not life for life. Rather, the person at fault could flee to a city of refuge. Remember, this is what we were talking about from Joshua, where they had to wait until the death of the high priest. That means that God established for Israel a law code that placed higher value on protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child than the life of anyone else in society. One final verse, Galatians chapter 1. Here, as in the passage of, uh, from Jeremiah and Isaiah, Paul speaks about himself, says that he has been set apart for service before he was born. Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So in context, Paul is giving a brief biographical sketch explaining his conversion. In verse 15, he says that God set him apart from his mother's womb before he was born, and then describes his call to preach the gospel. And once again, you look at those pronouns, and the same me who was in his mother's womb is the me who was called to preach the gospel. 
Another example of scripture affirming that there is continuity from the prenatal person in the womb to the adult who here, in this case, is writing the epistle. So without question, in spite of what politicians or activists might want to say, in spite of what some who may have a clerical title before their name might want to say, because there are many who will try to make the case that the Bible doesn't say anything one way or the other about abortion. The reality is the Bible says a great deal about who people are and the value of life and how it ought to be preserved. And so as we hear these other voices, we need to be able to come back to the scripture and to understand what the scripture truly teaches about this. It is when when you hear people, and this is just an aside, when you hear people making arguments such as Jesus never mentioned fill in the blank, abortion, homosexuality, whatever the case may be. Right? Therefore it must be okay. What you're hearing is someone with zero understanding of how we read the scripture or anything else for that matter. We we don't go to any other kind of document or book and say, listen, unless they specifically mention something the way I think they should, they're not talking about it. That's ridiculous. Jesus upholds every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. We come to the word of God, not looking always. Sometimes there there are explicit statements, but sometimes there are no explicit statements about any given issue. That doesn't mean the scripture doesn't address those issues. We take the truth of what scripture does say, like everyone is created in the image of God, like we are persons in utero, And then we extrapolate implications from that. If a child in the womb is a person created in the image of God, where do I go with that? Well, one conclusion that should come to me is that I probably shouldn't kill it. We'll leave that there. If anybody has questions or something they want to add, we can talk about this a little bit as we typically do. Janet. Yeah. Like what? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Which which obviously fits perfectly with what Elizabeth says about him leaping for joy. Right. What do you do when you're full of joy? You frolic. <laughs> and that yeah, there there is again you know people will come and they'll try to find ways around all of these things and say, you know, well, you know, clearly what was being described there was, you know, the baby kicked and that's really all it was. And then the rest of this is just kind of somebody's, uh, 
you know, expansion on that or, or exaggeration. Say, well, okay, if you're going to say that, then just, just come right out and say, you don't believe the scripture is inspired. You don't believe it's the word of God. You don't believe it's authoritative. You don't believe you, sh- you have to submit to it. Then we, at least we know where we stand, right? Instead of coming to the text and trying to find out, all, you know, d- d- f- trying to make up all these rationalizations so that you don't have to deal with what's there in the text. And someone considers themselves to be a Christian, then that's, that kind of thing is not an option. Unfortunately, you know, it happens all too often. Anyone else? Yes. If you did not know this what you now teaching here, and this this is something like this that happened long ago, and you want a Christian or you didn't know about it, what how you go about that. All right, well thank you for that because that's how I was gonna end this. We can't talk about something like abortion without talking about grace. If there have been so many millions of children killed through abortion, that means there have been millions of mothers who have walked in to an abortion clinic. And God, who knew me and you in our mother's wombs, is a God who is so great and so gracious that he can forgive and heal even something like that. When we are... When we're dealing with this issue and when you know, we perhaps come across someone who has this in their, their past, right? the last thing we ought to be doing in that particular circumstance where we're dealing with a person rather than an issue, the last thing we ought to be doing is saying, really, you did that? You're a terrible person. What we ought to be doing is saying, I am so sorry that you have to carry this burden with you. Because whether they admit it or not, that's what they're doing. But we can't stop there because there is rescue there is salvation there is forgiveness and there is grace and we need to make sure that people know there is no sin that is greater than the grace of God and God will forgive abortion as he will forgive any other sin if we will repent and come to him trusting in the work of Christ The blood of Christ cleanses even from this. So that's got to be our response. 
There, it, it's, it's one thing to do what we have done here and treat an issue as an issue. It's an issue in the professing church. It's an issue in the nation. It's a political issue. It's different when we're dealing with a person. Because that person who may have, for whatever reason, have abortion in her background, she too is created in the image of God. And God will forgive, and God will restore, and God will heal. And when we're dealing with individuals, that's the message we need to get across. Now, all of that, of course, is based on this. Someone has to know that they have sinned. And that's why I say when we, we're speaking to people, we've got to come from the, from, from, from the direction of the word. The word has got to be the foundation there. The only help that people have for the burden that, that inevitably must be afflicting them is the grace of God. And in order to receive the grace of God, there first has to be an acknowledgement of the need for the grace of God. The word of God gives us all of that. Starts with the law and brings us to grace. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's leave that there then. Thanks for staying around. I appreciate it. I hope it was helpful. Father, thank you for your grace. We know, Father, that there are many who have sinned in ways, Father, that we might consider to be egregious and heinous. But you tell us that we have all sinned in such ways. The wages of sin is death, not this particular kind of sin or that particular kind of sin. And so, Father, we are so grateful for that. We have no hope apart from your grace. And the only hope that will heal is the hope of grace. Coming, Father, from you who are merciful because of what your Son has done, We thank you for it. And we pray, Father, for our nation, for this state, that you would change things and that you would put a stop to the murder of unborn children. Father, may your faithful church continue to raise its voice to proclaim to the world what is right and what is wrong and to point them to Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.